the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. He's also doing the laundry and the cooking for the weekend. So we are grateful that uh, James is with us. And um, how you doing, James? You, you doing all right? I know this is Friday. It's been a busy week. You've got an event coming up tomorrow with Michael Jr., at uh, East Hill Church, and you're sort of the guy that handles all that stuff. You doing all right? You I'm having heart right. palpitations? Tickets, tickets still available, kptq.com. Oh, all right then. Funny, well, funny, sure that, funny guy. that out there. Yeah, I was, um, I was planning on going to that, and there was an emergency need for a musician that's called me away. I'm so disappointed. So I wonder if you could memorize his act, and then on Monday just perform it for me so I wouldn't... It's as if I, I had been there. You could just remember the lines and then... Yeah, no. That, 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 that's one of the downsides you get with a producer with ADD. Not happening. <laughs> well, anyway, he does have an event it's, it's coming those, up. Uh, it's one of those things where you, you come out, that was so funny, that was so... What was your favorite joke? I don't remember (laughs) he does have a movie coming out in october and i don't know if it'll be the same material but i've never seen him perform on youtube or any place else where i haven't just laughed out loud so maybe i can kind of make up the impression the movie is a little bit of his stand-up and a lot of documentary about uh yes about humor and understanding it's it's a fact uh i wish i had the opportunity to watch it a few weeks ago unfortunately i wasn't able to do so i was kind of disappointed but uh um you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it some point down the road. Yeah, yeah. By the way, um, this is Fun Friday, and what we do on Fridays, typically, uh, assuming there's no breaking news, we focus on the lighter side of the news, the stuff we wouldn't typically cover during the course of the week. But I would be remiss if we didn't bring the latest on Hurricane Florence, which thankfully has been downgraded to a t- tropical storm. But that doesn't mean um, things have gotten better. It's kind of hard to explain, but the uh, the, the surges of, of water... Uh, the wind and all of that is creating a very significant uh, challenge for the people there. And, of course, there are always those who uh, choose not to evacuate for a variety of reasons. And there has been uh, there have been deaths as a consequence, although the numbers are relatively low at this point. It doesn't really matter because if this is your family, that one uh, matters as much as, uh, as any other number. But Florence was downgraded to a tropical storm uh, today, making landfall earlier in the day in North Carolina as a Category 1 hurricane. Now, Category 1 might sound a little bit encouraging, but it's still followed by hurricanes, so that tells you how serious it is. The agency's uh, update uh, came from Florence, uh, claimed its first victim on Friday afternoon when two people died after a tree fell on their home in Wilmington, North Carolina. Not the sort of thing that you think about being one of the dangers of remaining in the area, but with so much saturation, uh, the soil um, can't necessarily hold on to the roots, and the tree fell on a home. The storm was about 50 miles west-southwest of Wilmington, North Carolina, and about 25 miles northeast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. The National Hurricane uh, Center said at 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, moving westward at 3 p.m., Florence has maxim, um, maximum sustained winds of 70 miles per hour. On the forecast track, the center of Florence will move further inland across extreme southwest um, North Carolina this evening across extreme east South Carolina tonight and Saturday. 
Again, the National Weather Service. Florence will then move generally northward across the West Carolinas and the central Appalachian Mountains early next week. So this is, again, sustained. Uh, As the storm travels inland, significant weakening is expected through to early next week. The storm's first fatalities were a mother and infant, according to police on uh, Twitter. The father sustained injuries, was transported to a local hospital uh, in Wilmington for medical care. Earlier Friday, the Wilmington police tweeted that they were uh, responding. They did have some difficulty arriving, and uh, that uh, may have contributed to the outcome. The two other individuals uh, who were also killed in the midst of the storm, uh, a person in uh, Lenore uh, County died while plugging in a generator, according to news release. Not clear what happened there, but uh, the hurricane, uh, I should say, the uh, rescuers said our hearts go out to the families of those who have died in the storm. Hurricane Florence is going to continue its violent grind across our state for days. Be extremely careful and stay alert. A fourth death was confirmed by an official in Pender County, North Carolina. An unidentified woman suffered a medical related fatality. In the midst of the storm, as emergency responders were unable to reach her due to a downed tree, according to public information. Things you can't anticipate, but reasons why you're asked to evacuate. With the storm's downgrade, it began thrashing Florence, South Carolina, with tropical storm force winds. Um, dangerous storm surge continued to be the threat, while forecasters said catastrophic freshwater flooding was likely to occur over parts of the Carolinas. A storm surge warning was in effect from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, through the Salvo, North Carolina, as well as um, Pamlico, South in North Carolina, uh, areas from uh, Edesto Beach, uh, Beach, rather, South Carolina, to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, as well as the uh, Pamlico Sound were under tropical storm warning. And those surges can be as dangerous as anything else. Governor Cooper said earlier Friday that Florence is weakening, or rather wreaking havoc, and he's concerned uh, that whole communities could be wiped away. Uh, He said it was powerful, slow and relentless. This is an uninvited brute who doesn't want to leave. Well, President Trump, who in an earlier tweet praised FEMA, first responders and law enforcement for their response, is planning to visit storm affected areas next week. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders says the trip will take place once it's confirmed that it won't get in the way of rescue efforts. Uh, Preparing for the worst, about 9,700 National Guard troops and civilians were deployed with the high water vehicles, uh, helicopters, boats that could be used to pluck people from the floodwaters. More than 600,000 people had already lost power by 1 p.m. today. That's Eastern time. The North Carolina Department of Public Safety says Duke Energy said in a tweet that they expect one to three million outages across the Carolinas, adding that restoration in the hardest hit communities could take weeks. Officials said some 1.7 million people in the Carolinas and Virginia were warned to evacuate, but it's unclear how many actual did. The homes of about 10 million were under watch or warnings for the hurricane or tropical storm conditions. So it's uh, downgraded significantly, but as bad as predicted in other ways. We certainly continue to pray for the, the folks displaced by Hurricane uh, Florence and be ready to respond to the needs that will be uh, many once this um, this event has passed. So that's the latest on uh, what's happened there. Well, storm preparedness and having a kit that makes you and your family ready to um, survive a disaster is one thing, but there's a new um, call for one area that may not have occurred to most of us. It's your duty. Add emergency toilets to your disaster preparedness kits, experts are saying. Are you ready for the big one? Well, chances are, even if you have an emergency kit at home, you're probably missing one very important 
item, a place to go to the bathroom. Now, if you don't have water and you can't flush, that could be an issue. Communities across the uh, Portland area are urging people to get a portable one of uh, sorts or more than one, um, uh, two separate buckets, one uh, for, well, and the other for the other. Laura Hall works at the Portland Bureau of Emergency Management, and she's leading a campaign called Emergency Toilet Project, nicknamed Pooh Lady. Uh, she has made it her mission to educate people on how to uh, potty post-earthquake, specifically the massive Cascadia subduction zone quake offshore that scientists say could hit at any time. Well, when it does, our sewer system could be wiped out for months, she reminds us. Um, health experts say digging holes to uh, go to the restroom and um, could contaminate our groundwater and spread disease. So that's not a viable option in a an urban area. The healthiest option is to have uh, buckets for the potentials for going like the poo bucket with a garbage bag, a heavy duty garbage bag and fill it halfway. Uh, she explains, then tie a uh, tie it really tight, double bag it to make sure there's um, no leakage and so on. And then you keep that until the system can manage what's in the bags, which means you'll uh, likely store your waste for at least 30 days before it's picked up or deposited in an appropriate place. You can buy the five-gallon buckets at most uh, big box stores, or if available, Metro Paint will give them out for free. But something I'd never thought of, um, that I certainly have thought of now, arranging for that in the case, in the event of an emergency. Well, Cadbury owner Mondelez will uh, stockpile key ingredients in its uh, uh, products to protect itself in the event of a no-deal Brexit deal, or no-Brexit deal, however you want to put it. We'll talk more about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 23 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When you think about important political decisions that will determine the future of not only a nation, but a collection of nations, a coalition of nations, if you will, one may overlook the more important aspects of a decision like Brexit. Well, Mondelez, the confectionery maker's uh, owner... Cadbury, uh, says the U.K. isn't self-sufficient in ingredients and it in, is in, if it embarks on uh, Brexit. Uh, so they're making arrangements that they will be able to survive. Cadbury owner Mondelez will stockpile, uh, stockpile rather key ingredients and in its products to protect itself in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Hubert Weber, who is the European chief of the food giant, said the U.K. is not self-sufficient in terms of food ingredients and the chocolate manufacturer will have to stockpile chocolate, biscuits, and other ingredients to meet supply. The move emerged as the company discussed its no-deal or hard Brexit plans. Mr. Weber told The Times, like the whole of the food and drink industry in the UK, we would prefer a deal that allows the free flow of products as this would have less of an impact on the UK consumer. However, we are also preparing for the hard Brexit and from a buffering perspective for Mondelez. We are stocking um, higher levels of ingredients, finished products, although we can only do so much because of the shelf life of our product. We have a contingency plan in place to manage uh, as the U.K. is not self-sufficient in terms of these ingredients, Mr. Weber warned customers they face higher prices, fewer choices for their chocolate fix. Now, this alone should frighten uh, people living in the U.K. It comes amid a raft of businesses admitting that they will be stockpiling for the post-Brexit world. Now, the health secretary said in July that officials are considering working to stockpile drugs, medical devices and supplies. So um, they're getting ready. But uh, chocolate shortage or a limited supply, may it never be on this side of the pond. 
Well, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, there's been a lot said about him, a lot of questions raised about his competence, his character. Well, there's one thing that did not come out in the hearings that I think you should know. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh eats his spaghetti topped with ketchup. Wow. United States Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court vacancy left by retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy, is currently undergoing his confirmation process in front of the Senate. Uh, the vote's expected next uh, Next week, I believe. While some may believe Kavanaugh earned the um, the nomination because of his views on whether a sitting U.S. president can face trial, which may be of uh, this president's interest, perhaps it's actually the judge's terrible dietary habits that endeared him to President Trump. Kavanaugh eats his spaghetti topped with ketchup, and that's according to Esquire magazine. Senator Orrin Hatch had the floor during Tuesday's hearings. That's last Tuesday, which he used the... Uh, a droll praise onto um, Kavanaugh's head and confirm a long-running theory about the nominee. You are the sort of person many of us would like to have as a friend and colleague. You also apparently like to eat pasta with ketchup, but nobody is perfect, Hatch said. Well, that's right. The 84-year-old from Utah poked fun at Kavanaugh's bland diet. Senator Hatch was referring to a recent report from the Yale Daily News in which a former classmate of Kavanaugh's revealed his preferred culinary hmm, abomination. On the rare occasion Kavanaugh expanded his palate, he did not take too many risks. When he had spaghetti sauce, it was ragu. He didn't want uh, anything spicier than that, Mr. Hartman, Associate General Counsel at Verizon, told the Daily News. Trump is known for eating well-done steaks bathed in ketchup. He and his nominee are perfect dinner companions. But, of course, they won't be having dinner together. But I thought you should know, as the nomination moves forward, ketchup on his spaghetti. I, I admit that I'm a little disturbed and grossed out by it. Yeah, I just, uh, why would you want ketchup when you could have so so much better? Well, the question is, how, how do you stumble upon that to begin with? Well, there is that. Uh, one of his former classmates, uh, apparently in an interview, made it known. He graduated from Yale Law School in 1990, the same year Martin Scorsese's uh, mob classic Goodfellows arrived in theaters. In the movie's final scene, Henry Hill, played by Ray Liotta, offers an example of his pathetic life in the Federal Witness Protection Program. Can't even get decent food, Hill says. Right after I got here, I ordered spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got egg noodles and ketchup to each their own. Ketchup. Is that something you would ever do in New York? Uh, no. 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 I don't think <laughs> No, they, they, you know, there is, there is familial uh, pride in in sauce, uh, and uh, yeah, the the including the the many restaurants which are family owned, and I don't mean, I mean families and you know brothers sisters, they they hand it down from multiple generations, and should they choose to share it through their restaurant, you treasure that, you enjoy it, savor it, you don't say, can you pass me the Heinz? <laughs> Not a good idea. No, no. Well, Guinness World Records is celebrating the oldest trapeze artist and the highest jumping dog. Well, in October. Octogenarian flying trapeze artist, the owner of the world's fastest jet-propelled go-kart, and a dog named Feather with a flair for jumping are among the record-breaking stars to win a place in the latest edition of the Guinness World Records. I guess they only publish it once a year. Others to feature in the 2019 edition of the book, which went on sale Thursday, include the creator of the world's largest knitting needles and an Irish butcher, Barry John Crow, who has produced the most sausages, 78 in one minute. Betty Goodhart uh, from California has been named the world's oldest trapeze artist at 85 and attributes her success to doing things she enjoys doing. I'm hoping I encourage people women, uh, to not think that uh, when they hit a certain age, 55, they're old. We have got a lot more on, a, on the journey, Goodhart says, who only began trapeze classes at age 78. Well, it looks as though she has spent a lifetime swinging through the air upside down. Another octogenarian honored in the book is 
Sumiko Iwamura, an 83-year-old Japanese restaurant owner who in the evening turns into DJ Sumarok, the world's oldest professional club disc jockey. British art student Elizabeth Bond, 31, decided to draw attention to her exhibitions by creating knitting needles that measure some 4.42 meters or 14 feet by 5 inches in length. Another Briton, Tom Bagnall, a 26, racked up the record to a speed of 112.29 miles per hour uh, for a jet-propelled go-kart. Animals also featured among the latest world record breakers. Dog owner Samantha Val uh, from the U.S. state of Maryland trained Feather, whom she adopted from a rescue center to jump over... Um, ever higher hurdles until she has set a new canine record of 191.7 centimeters, which is 6.3 feet as a dog jumping over a hurdle. Congratulations to this year's celebrities. Not quite sure how to uh, refer to them, but Guinness World Records book is now out for 2019, and these are just a few of the new entries. We, we still have to work on the, Every time we, we talk about the Guinness book, we, we talk about the records that we want to try. We, we just really yeah. need to get around to it. It's, we do. Spaghetti maybe, with maybe, ketchup? No, no. Maybe not. Maybe the most procrastination to actually pursue a uh, Guinness record. I wonder if that's a record. We can always look it up. The new book's out. That's all I'm saying. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the iconic ruby slippers Judy Garland wore in the film The Wizard of Oz have been recovered. You probably didn't know they had been lost, but 13 years after they were stolen, Grand Rapids Police Department of Minnesota and the FBI announced the slippers, one of at least three existing pairs used while shooting the film, have been recovered. Well, the slippers were uh, stolen from the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. At the time they were stolen, the slippers were on loan to the museum by private collector Michael Shaw as part of a special tour. Garland played Dorothy in the 1939 film. Grand Rapids is the town where the actress was born. Well, in August of 2005, a burglar broke a window in the museum's back door and entered. The burglar then smashed a plexiglass case where the slippers were and got away with them. The alarm uh, didn't sound to a central dispatch system and no finger prints were left behind, only a single red sequin. Hmm. Sounds like a job for Hercule Poirot. Anyway, Rap- Grand Rapids Police De- Detective uh, Brian Matson received information about the stolen slippers last summer that led the department to team up with the FBI as the tip involved investigating outside the state. According to the Associated Press, the FBI said a man approached the insurer in summer, the summer of 2017 and said he could help get them back. The slippers were then recovered in July during a sting operation in Minneapolis. Sounds like blackmail to me. Well, Dorothy's uh, ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz were recovered 13 years after they were stolen from Judy Garland uh, at the museum. The FBI said uh, no one has yet been arrested or charged in the case, but they have multiple suspects and continue to investigate. As they unveiled the recovered slippers at a news conference on Tuesday, they asked anyone with information about the theft to contact them. Investigators say they worked with the experts at the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, which also has a pair of ruby slippers from the movie, to verify that the pair was, in fact, authentic. Grand Rapids Police Sergeant uh, Robert Stein said that his department stayed quiet about the rumors regarding the slippers over the years, hoping the truth would emerge one day which apparently it did. The police department really had no evidence and no clues to work with. The investigators assigned to the case were fearful that the thief might destroy the slippers if he believed the police were on his trail. Therefore, when rumors developed that local wayward youth were most likely responsible for the theft and had tossed the slippers into the Mississippi River or in one of the many water-filled uh, 
iron ore pits that dot the landscape. They had little to uh, dispel it. We believe that information would eventually surface, and we knew we were uh, in this for the long haul. Well, Stein added that officers investigated tips over the years, but many led to reproductions of the slippers, not the real thing. Police are not uh, releasing more information about the investigation as it remains active. But the ruby red slippers, or at least one of several pair, has been recovered. If you're lost in the um, habit of mowing your lawn at least once a week, you may want to consider mowing less often after knowing what we know. I want to write this down. There's nothing like, you know, having the satisfaction of looking out at a freshly mown lawn on a summer's day, which is drawing to a close here. But mowing your lawn means keeping those weeds and wildfires uh, tame around your landscape, which probably seems like a problem that needs to be uh, dealt with frequently. However, you may want to consider letting those wildflowers and weeds grow just a bit for the bees. Now, I'm not suggesting I'm going to do it in my yard, but you might want to consider it in yours. Yes, bees. By moving your lawn, or rather mowing your lawn every week, you're leaving no life for bees to feed on. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like a huge problem because uh, who would want bees on their lawn? Uh, They're even more annoying than the weeds and the wildflowers. So mowing your lawn consistently seems like the ultimate solution. However, if you keep a garden or care about the growth of vegetables and fruit, you need to feed the bees. And so if you have been um, encouraged to mow your lawn every week, you might just say, look, I'm not going to do it this week. It's for the bees. You now have a legitimate scientific excuse. Bees are natural uh, pollinators, as you know, which help the growth of your plants. By having plants to feed on, they can cross-pollinate and help the naturally fertilize your other plants. That's especially crucial for the growth of vegetables and fruits. According to an article published by the National Resource Defense Council in March, of 2011, cross-pollination helps at least 30% of the world's crops to grow and 90% of wild plants. Without bees, these plants wouldn't thrive and couldn't even, uh, could rather even die completely off. Well, in 2007, beekeepers were seeing cases of colony collapse disorder, as they call it, CCD, where honeybees were just simply leaving their colonies for good, never returning. Typically, worker bees don't leave their colonies unless a queen leaves the hive and brings along bees with her. The fact that bees are having um, are leaving rather can happen for numerous reasons, but not having enough food or water is certainly one of them. Now, maybe they, you hate bees, you don't really care about them thriving at all, but if you care about your garden, you might consider cutting the lawn at least every other week so the bees have something to feed on. And you know those uh, weeds, they grow every other day, so that would give them a little something to snack on between mowing. Just make sure you pick up the... Um, Uh, other stuff that might be on your lawn because it can have a a serious threat to the health of your yard as well. So there you have it. I'm so grateful to live in the Pacific Northwest where certain kinds of uh, pests and threats just simply don't exist. Well, if you're wondering where all of these uh, massive mosquitoes are coming from in the Houston, Texas area, well, with the recent wet weather uh, that they've been having with even more headed uh, to the area over the next several days, the mosquito population is on the rise there. Um, a viewer uh, sent eyewitness news a video showing a giant mosquito on their car, and another viewer snapped a picture of a quarter-sized mosquito in her house in Santa Fe. Now think about it, the little mosquito that you're used to seeing around here uh, multiplied in size to the size of a quarter. Also, ABC 13 reporter Steve Campion and his photography took, a, took to Twitter to describe their encounter with mosquitoes. He said, in part, I can't tell you how many mosquitoes swarmed their uh, their effort. Every time we hit one, there was blood, so they're very efficient. Well, viewers 
uh, from um, Brazario and Galveston County also complained about the swarms of mosquitoes there invading their area and the size of the mosquitoes as well. There's so many they could carry um, uh, they could carry disease and other things you don't want. If you're looking for a natural way to keep the flying pests out of the yard, try using uh, plants that grow um, uh, to help repel them. Basil, lemongrass, rosemary, marigolds are a few of the plants that can keep insects at bay. Now, that's not going to help us here now, but something to keep in mind. But again, in Houston, huge mosquitoes here, not so much, thankfully. Not all babies are cute. Now, you may disagree, but hear me out. Unfortunately for the latest baby critter born at the Denver Zoo, Tonks the I.I. is simply one of those less fortunate in the beauty department. Her beady little eyes are yellow, her face is mostly bald, and um, she has sort of skeletal fingers. In some cultures, in the animal's native Madagascar, the appearance of an eye-eye is an omen of evil. Well, it seems only right for a baby whose parents are named Bellatrix and Smeagol that their child would look a little bit, well, off. But a little little girl's birth last month in Denver is a boon for biologists attempting to save one of the rarest species in the world. Only 24 of these lemurs live in seven zoos across the United States, according to the Denver Zoo. It's unclear how many live in the wild because the nocturnal primates that spend almost all of their lives in trees are notoriously hard to glimpse. And if you've seen one, you're probably glad of it. Well, despite a startling appearance, eye eyes have a number of unique characteristics. They search for grubs in trees by uh, tapping on the wood and listening for the echo to find a cavity, the mammalian version of the woodpecker, if you will. Like a rodent, their incisors um, never stop growing. The lemurs, these are L-E, uh, probably better pronounced lemurs, uh, spend most of their lives alone, according to the Duke Lemur Center. A, a cursory glance through Google images of adult eye eyes uh, seem to show that little tonks will, that's the name of this little girl, will grow more beautiful in time. The hair will grow on her uh, face. Her eyes will become more proportional. Tonks is currently in the Denver Zoo's eye eye exhibit, but likely won't be uh, visible for the next few months as she grows inside a nest box and doesn't really like to be seen. So uh, Denver's, Zoo, Denver's Zoo is welcoming a rare, ugly omen of evil baby animal into its flock. You gotta love it all. Cute stuff and the not-so-cute stuff. Well, a genetic study published on Sunday raised the question of whether or not a super snake could emerge in the Florida Everglades after it was revealed a small number of Burmese and Indian pythons had been breeding. The journal Ecology and Evolution reported that experts examined tail tissue of 400 captured snakes from South Florida and found 13 had some genetic indications that point to Indian pythons. Well, the Indian python, unlike the Burmese python, prefers high and dry grounds. Um, a geneticist at the U.S. Geological Survey and lead author of the report that the Indian pythons have a wider range. Hunter said that seeing the Indian marker was unexpected and she had to keep looking at the data to make sure what she was seeing was correct. Well, tens of thousands of pythons are estimated to uh, be slithering through the Everglades. Scientists say the giant constrictor snakes, which grow to up to 20 feet long, have eliminated 99% of native uh, mammals in the Everglades, decimating food sources for native predators such as panthers and alligators. The area also has habitat for American crocodiles, one of the protected native species in the Everglades, rather, that officials say are losing ground to the invasive pythons. Well, Hunter said in the report that it's unclear how the species got crossed, but scientists believe that the snakes could 
uh, head north due to the warming planet. Uh, such a, a large population allows them to rapidly adapt. Uh, if some animals die out because of climate issues, there are other animals that may not die at all and, in fact, morph into something quite different. Oh, the wonders of the planet. Well, a woman shopping for groceries says she was surprised to find a snake on her shopping cart while picking out products at a New York supermarket. Are we just being overrun all across the country by snakes? Uh, Lori Walistsky uh, says that she was at uh, Wegmans in Pittsford on Monday evening when her daughter spotted the hitchhiking reptile wrapped on the bottom of her cart. Now, whenever I go anywhere now, I just thoroughly examine everything about it because you never know. The Rochester Democrat and Chronicle reports the women tried uh, walking the cart outside and had her daughter tell customer service there was a snake on it. She was able to flag down two employees who removed the snake and placed it in a nearby wooded area. A spokesman said in a statement that this was an isolated incident, at least they hope it was. One biology professor, Bradley Constantino, identified the pictured snake as a non-venomous milk snake, a common snake species that, of course, belongs outside rather than in. And one final story, sometimes snakes need a spot to sort out their differences, and sometimes that spot is your family's spare bedroom. Now, you brought this one to my attention, James. According to USA Today, a pair of male coastal carpet pythons in the middle of a brawl fell through the ceiling duct of a Brisbane, Australia home and into the bedroom where they continued to duke it out, if you will. Well, the change of scenery didn't stop the snakes from fighting when staff from the snake catchers Brisbane, Ipswich, Logan and Coast, Gold Coast, arrived at the home to do their job. The two snakes were still entangled in battle. The snake catcher tasked with separating the pair filmed her encounters with the reptiles, which we saw online, which uh, pretty much made my skin crawl and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah, it, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't look like it was a fun day to be a snake. No, not that there's a good day to be a snake, but it was a particularly not good one. But. It's one of those things where you look at that and go, if that happened at my house, I very calmly walk out the front door and burn the place down. <laughs> well, they say that these you snakes just start over. Will, will There's fight. no coming back from that. They'll fight sometimes for hours until one gets tired or injured, and then who knows what they do then. They slither off into your closet. Who knows? This particular fight was never finished since they eventually safely separated the raging reptiles and released them into the wild away from the home. But you'd raised the question earlier, where is the female they were fighting over? Well, well, that's the thing. The pheromones are present so that that female snake can't be particularly far away. And if you just took her quarters away, it, she may not be all that happy herself. Point. Yeah. Not so somewhere to... in that house could be a really angry female snake. Yeah, I think I'm on your side. Just yeah, step should... outside, take care of the matter. Mm-hmm. 48 minutes after four o'clock, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. Well, the man that stole $4,000 worth of electronics from a Connecticut church on Sunday morning, this was about uh, two weeks ago, left a note behind asking the congregation to pray for me using the number four instead of the word for pray for me, police said. The uh, Waterbury Police Department released surveillance video that showed the unidentified man taking electronics from inside the Mount Olive AME Zion Church at approximately 1 a.m. on Sunday morning before the congregation met uh, later that day, just hours before the service. Um, Jacelyn Davis, head of the church's media ministry, said that they estimated that at least $4,000 worth of audio and video equipment had been stolen. Realizing that we didn't have the equipment to do what we needed to do on Sunday, it was really heartbreaking, she says. One of the church members says that the theft cripples the efforts of the church ministry because it stops other members that are sick or unable to attend services. 
The remorseful thief also reportedly left behind an apology note that read, Pray for me, sorry brothers, save me, and drew a little sad face. Hmm. Well, Davis said that the minister did, in fact, say a prayer for the man during Sunday morning service. Uh, Police are asking uh, for information to uh, find the person from the local community. So far, that has not been the case, but stole something, I guess, apologized rather than ask for permission when it came to taking the church's stuff. I'm not really sure how the electronics prevented um, some members of the church from participating, although it could have involved equipment that allows people who otherwise cannot hear Uh, to better hear what's being uh, sung or taught. Anyway, $4,000 worth of stuff, acknowledging from the very beginning that he had done wrong. Well, they prayed for him and only hope that he will ultimately repent, which means turn around and go the other direction and maybe even return the stuff. Well, Six Flags Great America in Gurney, that's in um, Illinois, has announced a triple record breaker roller coaster coming to the park in the summer of 2019. And um, it's uh, it's pretty ominous to see. Max Force, as it's called, will be the fastest launch uh, roller coaster in North America. I think there's something wrong with calling a roller coaster launch. You don't want to really be launched from a roller coaster, if you know what I mean. It will feature the fastest inversion and highest double inversion of any roller coaster in the world, according to the news release from Six Flags. The new Max Force coaster is... uh, In a class all by itself, launching riders from zero to 78 miles per hour in under two seconds. No other coaster in the country accelerates at that blistering speed, Six Flags Great America Park President Hank Salimi says. Now, does that interest you at all, James, that kind of speed and uh, that velocity on a roller coaster? Boy, you know, it it sounds like the kind of roller coaster that probably would be a little bit too intense for me, but I've gone on a few where I thought that was the case the entire time, regretting it from point A to point B. (laughs) And then I I recall a couple of years ago um, going on a roller coaster in New Jersey with some friends and uh, on a visit back east. And midway through it, I'm like, I must I must hate life. I, I can't believe I'm on this thing. Yeah, we get off, and we're all like, "Oh my gosh, that was that was terrible. That was terrible." Then, then one of one of us, not me, said, "Should we go on again?" Yes, yes, we should, and we all did. You did. We all did. Wow. Yeah, I don't know why we did that either, but uh, so I guess the thing is, if there, I might be able to be talked into something like that, which is sad. Wow, lesson not learned. No, well, not, the lesson um, not learned. Max Force highlights include a unique air-powered launching system propelling guests forward at record speeds, the world's highest double inversion at 175 feet above ground, the fastest inversion of any roller coaster in the world with a 60 miles per hour zero G roll, five high-speed inversions, one-of-a-kind custom coaster trains modeled after Formula One racing cars. Wow, this is in the summer of 2019. The park's new edition will be the 17th roller coaster and will live in the Carousel Plaza area of the park. I really love rides. I like going fast. I like going high. This may be a little much, but um, I'd like to give it a try. I'm watching a computer simulation of it right now. Yeah? uh, Because after the description, I'm like, okay, I have to see. And boy, I I tell you, these simulations are so good these days. It almost does feel like you're on it, minus the the G-Force, as it were. But uh, yeah, I have to admit, I think I could be talked into this one. I wouldn't want to do it, but I would be talked into it. You think so? I think so. All right. You might have to take a road trip to Six Flags and test that theory. Yeah, that's uh, the one in Illinois. Uh, The excuses to go to Illinois, the Chicago area, are few and far between. But (laughs) hey, you know, you never know. Yeah, you never know. Well, a 75-year-old Cleveland man had a harrowing experience of his own. This is last month when his car's electrical system conked out. 
And he was trapped inside his car for 13 hours, unaware that he could have freed himself within seconds. Well, Peter Prios got into a 2006 Cadillac XLR that was parked in his garage on the 31st of last month. But he found that it was dead when he tried to start it. Instead of a lever, the XLR has an electronic push button door release, which didn't work without power. Neither did the windows, roof or horn. Now, you'd want the horn to at least work. Well, Prios uh, says that he tried to kick out the window, but didn't have any luck. He also didn't uh, bring his cell phone with him, so all of the uh, all he could do was to scream for help as the temperature inside that car started to rise. Now, this could have been a very dangerous situation. Hot is not the word, he says. I felt like I was... Well, incinerating, he continued to yell and pound and said he passed out twice from exhaustion. At one point, he wrote a note to his family explaining what happened so they wouldn't think he uh, deliberately ended his life. Well, the owner's manual wasn't in the car, so he didn't know that there was um, anything else that he could do. If it were, he may not have found himself in such an ordeal. Anticipating this possibility, the XLR has a well-marked manual door release. Uh, It's a lever located on the floor next to the seat, but Prios didn't know it was there. If he had, a simple pull would have freed him. Now, I mention this because, you know, if you find yourself in a similar situation, first of all, have the manual in the car, and then look for another way to get out. Virtually every car should have one. A General Motors spokesman says that he was glad the gentleman is okay. Any vehicle or key fob uh, can um, lose power unexpectedly, so please urge Uh, drivers to review the power locks uh, section of their owner's manual so that they know how to get out if that were to occur. Fortunately for Mr. Pryor, his neighbors eventually heard the noises he was making and noticed that the garage door was open and the lights um, uh, uh, were on later that evening. So one hopped the fence to investigate and found him in the car. They called the fire department who managed to jumpstart the car and get the door open without damaging the vehicle. The incident was similar to one that took the lives of 72-year-old Texan James Rogers and his dog back in 2015 when they got stuck in a Corvette that uses the same type of door mechanism as the XLR. Prios has retained an attorney and is considering taking legal action against GM. Well, it was in the manual. There was a way to get out. He just didn't know it. So there's one good reason to um, read the manual. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show featuring James Blend on the trumpet. <laughs> that wasn't very good. I didn't claim it was. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we're glad to have you with us this second hour of our fun Friday edition of the show. We've been uh, keeping one eye poised on what's going on with Hurricane Florence. And, of course, everything that was um, predicted has pretty much happened. Um, there have been a few fatalities, and we're um, always hopeful that we can get through an episode like this without them. But uh, there's a, going to be a struggle and quite a cleanup after all of this is done. I know lots of us are praying for the people in the path of this hurricane that uh, we're being told is going to stay uh, in the area for a number of days, leaving many without power and worse, uh, and then be prepared to step up and help as opportunity presents itself uh, for those who need to recover following this event. Well, Sharon Moore had uh, heard the stories about her father getting his duffel bag stolen on his way back from the Korean War. The New Hampshire woman never expected to see any of the contents, however. In July, she received a Facebook friend request from a stranger in France. She deleted it, but the person responded with a Facebook message asking for help in finding the owner of a lost wallet. Attached were several black and white pictures 
pictures, including one of her mother as a young woman, another of her aunt, as well as the tattered Social Security card and Massachusetts driver's license. There's some really good benefits of Facebook and the ability to message. Immediately, I saw my dad's driver's license and my mother's photo. I knew it was my dad's wallet, Moore said of her father. Robert McCuster, who died a day before her 20th birthday in 1983, I couldn't believe it. Really, my dad's wallet after all these years, it was just weird, she said. Well, the brown leather wallet was found in a basement of a building uh, in France, a small city about 185 miles southwest of Paris. Workers had tossed it out, but the builder's owner, Patrick Cabot, he uh, noticed it on a pile of gravel and was drawn to the half dozen photographs and what looked like official documents. On closer inspection, he saw a field ration permit dated September 1950 belonging to Corporal Robert McCuster, as well as McCuster's Social Security card and other military documents. It was unclear how the wallet ended up in the building, although Moore said that uh, the person who found it had heard that the building once was a social club for American officers and that officers might also have stayed there. Well, the photographs made it very sentimental and personal and really gave her the uh, desire to find the family they belonged to, or rather gave him, uh, Cabot said, who works in communications for the French military. My grandmother and father were also in the war, he said, adding that his grandfather had been injured by a shell in World War II and his father suffered serious burns in the Algerian War. Don't you look forward to the day when we will not only study war no more, but there will be no more war? Anyway, he said, I would have loved it if someone had found papers or other things belonging to them and sent them to me. Well, he was um, interviewed in French, found a friend uh, who spoke English, and together they found an obituary for Moore's mother, uh, who died in 2014. They went to uh, went in search of his surviving relatives listed in the obituary, first posting the wallet's contents on the Facebook page of the person who found it. That prompted some replies from friends, including one who surmised that the wallet's owner was possibly a soldier who fell in love with a French woman. Well, they tried contacting the Pentagon, the U.S. Embassy in Paris, but got nowhere. Then Cabot, he uh, sought the help of a French military officer in Paris, which tracked down the names of McCuster's children in just days. Well, he found more on Facebook last month and shortly after the wallet was headed to Dover, New Hampshire. She was so happy to know that there was a trace of her father. She was almost ready to uh, come to France with her brother to get the wallet, but she um, uh, was told that it could be sent. Uh, He was afraid that it would get lost in the mail, but it arrived in less than a week and uh, it was intact. When the package arrived, Moore and her brother, Steve McCusker, uh, they uh, filmed themselves opening the wallet and emailed the video to the finder of the wallet so he could share in their joy. Well, for Moore and her relatives, the wallet represents another part of a father who rarely talked about his time at war. He also fought in World War II, forging a birth certificate at the age of 15 and running off to the uh, Merchant Marines. He then re-enlisted for the Korean uh, conflict and received a Purple Heart after he was injured in a grenade attack. Well, Moore gave the wallet to her brother. Uh, Stephen, who also lives in Dover because she already has her father's purple heart, his dog tags, and the flag from his coffin on display in her home. The family also sent uh, Cabot a gift basket featuring maple syrup from the backyard and some of the uh, candy her father enjoyed and a New England Patriots jersey, you know, things from home. It's just amazing, uh, she says, to hold something he hold er, he held rather every day. There are just no words. Uh, adding that her uh, father would have been uh, floored by the whole story and just thankful and grateful, especially because was it because it was a soldier who helped get it back to us. I thought that was a pretty touching story that after all these years, 
to have that return to uh, this military man's surviving family. Well, construction crews tearing down a former middle school in Massachusetts have found a 124-year-old time capsule. The Daily Item reports crews found the time capsule under one of the front steps of the former Swamp Scott Middle School. The capsule is dated April 28, 1894. Uh, the day the school was dedicated, it contains two newspapers, remnants of military uniforms from the Civil War, a war medal, and names of local uh, locals rather who served in the war. Planning Board Chairman Angela Ippolito uh, says that uh, they were aware of uh, the time capsule, that it existed, but weren't sure where it was located. She says the discovery was quite a thrill. The items are now heading to the Northeast Document Conservation Center for assessment, and the uh, former principal says that the they hope to put the items on display at Town Hall. Well, that had to be pretty thrilling. You might recall a week ago, or maybe it was two weeks ago, I shared the story of a school that had more recently buried a time capsule. It was just decades old and they couldn't find it. They didn't remember where they'd put it. So they dug up a number of places at the school and never did find it. In this case, the school was being demolished. They dug up the whole thing and found this 124-year-old time capsule. So pretty thrilling to find things that were buried so long ago for the purpose of generations to come. 14 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, that's the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With the hashtags, hashtag food, hashtag foodie, and hashtag food photography, boasting over a combined 418 million posts on Instagram, it's clear that our cultural obsession with culinary fads is not going out of style anytime soon. So keeping up with the times, Merriam-Webster has just added over 840 new words to its online dictionary, and over a dozen of them are food-related. I mean, that's not very many when you consider 840, but you get the idea. With inevitable entries like avo for avocado, guac for guacamole, and marge for margarita, uh, earnings uh, mentions, foodies won't be surprised that hangry, the state of being simultaneously hungry and angry, zoodle, which is a um, so-called term for spiralized zucchini, and hophead, uh, are now verified by Merriam-Webster as well. So they are official once the dictionary has uh, taken them up. More exotic terms include quaffable, enjoying a drink. Um, let's see, iftar, the Ramadan meal taken at sundown. Wagyu, yes, that's how you pronounce it. Certain strains of uh, a breed of black or red Japanese cattle noted for highly marbleized meat have also earned a respective place. Wagyu. Hmm. Strangely, um, the French term in culinary school 101 lesson for Let's see, Mizen Place, Dragon Fruit, Mocktail are new terms that are in there as well. As lexographers, uh, we are constantly tracking the ever-expanding lexicon, only defining the words that have demonstrated the kind of widespread, sustained, and meaningful use that shows they've um, been fully established members of the language. And it's interesting to see how the language expands with new words and concepts over, uh, over time. Uh, these new food words, as per the Detroit Free Press and now Merriam-Webster, have been added to the lexicon. Um, meanwhile, the language continues to do what it's been doing for as long as it's existed, grow and adapt to meet the needs of the people who use it. 
Bon Appetit are those new words that are now official in the English language. You might need to look them up to figure out what some of them mean, but um, there you go. Well, a woman's um, long-winded tirade blaming her friends and family for canceling her dream $60,000 wedding has gone viral on social media. The bizarre story has received a massive response after being shared on Facebook and Reddit by a woman identified as the bride's cousin. Well, the Facebook post starts with, it's come with great sadness that I am announcing the cancellation of the wedding I apolog- uh, wedding period. I apologize for canceling only four days beforehand. Now, this is a more sanitized version of the post, but the bride identified as Susan then reveals that she and her fiancé have broken up due to some recent and irreparable problems before going on to blame her friends and family for ruining her marriage and her life. Well, the woman explains that the couple met at 14 and worked together on a family farm. They then went to community college and worked and saved to become financially stable. We managed to save nearly $15,000 for a wedding. Since uh, our love was like a fairy tale, we wanted an extravagant blowout wedding, uh, one where our son could be in in, uh, included, the woman wrote. We started touring um, venues and were torn between two, a local Um, well, advisor, told us to go with the more expensive option, and we thought, uh, why not? A local um, had had suggested it. Well, the bride went on to say during her, well, rant, which I could not repeat uh, for personal as well as legal reasons, that all the couple needed uh, for their grand um, $60,000 wedding was a little push. Our dream wedding amounts to $60,000, all included with flights to Aruba. All we asked for was a little help from our friends and family to make it happen. Well, the 17-paragraph outburst said the pair specifically asked for cash gifts from the guests. How could we have our wedding that we dreamed of without proper funding? We'd sacrifice so much and only asked each guest for around $1,500. The bride also explained she made it clear... These are in caps, by the way. If you couldn't contribute, you weren't invited to be to our exclusive wedding. It's a once in a lifetime party. Well, much to the bride's dismay, she and her fiance quickly discovered that people were not willing to pay $1,500 to attend their special day. So we went, sent out RSVPs and only eight people replied and sent us the check. We were livid. It was actually more than livid, but I don't talk like that, so I won't read it. How were, how was this supposed to happen without a little help from our friends, she wrote. Well, desperately, we resent our invites and asked people to donate what they could, even if it was under $1,500. I mean, seriously, people, what is $1,000? What is $1,500? Clearly not a lot, she continued. We also set up a GoFundMe that only got $250. At this point, we were exhausted, tired, which is redundant, but that's what she wrote. Well, the bride said her now ex-fiancé suggested they get married in Vegas to save the cost, but she laughed in his face. He wanted those cheap, raggedy, filthy Vegas weddings, she wrote. Am I some, well, never mind, uh, that would engage in that kind of wedding? Well, my ex left the room and didn't apologize for his horrid suggestion, she wrote. The engaged woman then wrote that she took out her frustration on her maid of honor who had promised her $5,000 before backing out. Promised her $5,000. How could someone who offered me thousands of dollars then deny me my promised money and then tell me to um, shift down my budget? She knows my dream was a blowout wedding. I just wanted to be a Cardassian for a day and then live my life like normal, she wrote. I called her a poor excuse for a friend and hung up. 
The bride ended her rage by restating that she wanted her friends to pay for her dream wedding. How hard would it be to have been uh, a donating friend? Do I matter to you? Just give me money for my wedding. I won't even sugarcoat. I won't even pretend that's not what I wanted. It was for a dream. Many on Reddit and Facebook asked if the post was real, commenting that it was too strange to be true. Is this real? One wrote. It's too much. It can't be real. Can it? Another wrote. However, the bride's cousin posted an update ensuring that it was, in fact, a real wedding shaming forum on Facebook where she posted the original screenshots. Yes, this is a living, breathing human being, she wrote. Clearly, she was uh, has entitlement issues, but I have never known her to be this obnoxious. Do I matter to you? She had said. Just give me the money. I won't sugarcoat it. Well, honestly, over the years, she's been uh, nice and overall sweet. No red flags come to mind. She has a humble beginnings and has been working on her parents farm since she was young, the cousin said. Well, the bride's cousin called out social media and her family members' obsession with Kardashian stuff over the past few years as the cause for the meltdown. The cousin also felt the post may have been written while the bride was, well, not herself. It's especially vulgar and incredibly embarrassing. It was only up for about 15 minutes before she took it down, the cousin wrote in the follow-up. Several have commented on the ridiculous question from the betrothed couple. Some on Reddit even called the woman delusional, demanding $1,500 is insane, one wrote on Reddit. What an entitled delusional individual. Pay for your own wedding. So glad he walked, another wrote, referring to the groom. Well, they could have waited a year and perhaps saved up another grand or something like that, but Apparently the wedding is off. Wow. Is that what we've come to where betrothed couples believe they're entitled uh, for funding from family and friends? Wow. I know when I sent out my uh, email, I didn't ask for half that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show on this relatively fun Friday afternoon. James Blind, he's engineering, producing, and on occasion chiming in. Well, this is our science segment for those of you who uh, enjoy science. Well, the on-again, off-again conversation about the status of Pluto has continued, and now the argument is being made that Pluto should be a planet again. This is what researchers are arguing. Pluto should be reclassified rather than declassified as it once was as a planet. That's according to a new research study. In a paper published in the journal Icarus, Philip Metzger, a planetary scientist at the University of Central Florida, argues that the reason Pluto lost its planet status isn't valid. So the premise for uh, declassifying it is um, false, faulty. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union downgraded Pluto's status to dwarf planet. I mean, imagine how that had an impact on the planet's self-esteem. Well, the IAU defines a planet as a celestial body that has cleared the neighborhood around its orbit, which means that it uh, has to be the largest gravitational force in its orbit. Well, Neptune's gravity influences its neighbor, Pluto. The dwarf planet also shares its orbit with frozen gases and objects in the Kuiper Belt, according to researchers. Well, Mr. Metzger, he is the lead author of the study. He reviewed scientific literature from the past 200 years and found only one publication from 1802 that employed the clearing orbit requirement to classify planets. Well, the 1802 study, he argues, was based on 
since uh, disproven reasoning. Well, set against this backdrop, he believes that the IAU definition of what constitutes a planet needs to be rethought. It's a sloppy definition, he said in a statement. After all, it's the 21st century. They didn't say what uh, they meant by clearing their orbit. If they take that literally, then there are no planets at all because no planet clears its orbit. So it's back in the um, debate status as to whether or not Pluto will be reclassified, updated, Um, restored its previous status. Uh, By the way, moons such as Saturn's Titan and Jupiter's Europa, they've been routinely called planets by planetary scientists since the time of Galileo, Metzger points out. We now have a list of well over 100 recent examples of planetary scientists using the word planet in a way that violates the IAU definition, but they are doing it because it's functionally useful. The definition of a planet should be based on its um, intrinsic properties, the scientist said, as opposed to properties that can change, such as the dynamics of its orbit. And I was wondering, James, if you could, for those who are don't have a strong scientific background, if you could just explain that in layman's terms so that um, it can be better understood. You have the floor. You have no explanation, nothing to say. Your lips are moving. There's no sound coming out. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the um, cliff note version. Of- I think the issue's been fixed with the voice. But the answer is still about as blank as what you were hearing. (laughs) Okay, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, Let's see. Police officers uh, spent two hours investigating a suspicious plastic container that was found behind a Missouri sandwich shop before determining it was a high school science project. Well, KMBC television, they report that police were summoned on Tuesday to a Jimmy John's in Platte City. This is in Missouri on the northern edge of the Kansas City uh, metropolitan area. The plastic container they encountered was filled with blue fluid attached to other items. Officers eventually determined it was an experiment meant to demonstrate how hydrogen can be used as power. The student who built the project demonstrated it to friends inside Jimmy John's, then left it behind, uh, rather behind the store, so other friends could see it. But a worker at the nearby convenience store spotted the gadget and called 911. No charges were expected. You might want to be a little more careful with your science experiments. We are in a hyper-vigilant state these days, and it could be mistaken for something far more serious. In fact, it was thought to have been something planted there by something other than you or I. Well, the chicken or the egg? The age-old question that always sparks debate. Which came first? Well, the chicken or egg paradox was first proposed by philosophers in ancient Greece to describe the problem of determining cause and effect. Now, a team of physicists from the University of Queensland and the Neal Institute has shown that the chicken and egg can both come first. Now, this may be one of the first questions you ask when you are face to face with the creator of both the chicken and the egg, as well as you and I. But for now, um, you may not get what physicists are now saying. Uh, the answer lies in quantum physics. Now, again, we'll call upon James to explain this later, but uh, for the sake of our discussion now, we'll let the experts explain. Dr. Jacu Romero, what was that? Did you say expert? Well, I didn't, but... You should have. <laughs> I should have. Anyway, so don't if you don't get it, Dr. Jacques Romero said that in quantum physics, cause and effect was not always as straightforward as one event causing the other. The weirdness of quantum mechanics means that events can happen without a set order, the doctor said. Take the example of your daily trip to work, where you travel partly by bus, partly by train. Now, that's not true of either James or I, but you get the picture. Normally, you would take the bus and then the train or the other way around. In our experiment, both these events can happen first. Again, James will explain all this in a moment. This is called indefinite casual order, and it isn't something that we can uh, observe in our everyday life. To observe this effect in the lab, the researchers used a setup called phonetic quantum switch. Well, Dr. Costa, Fabio Costa, not that 
Fabio, but this Fabio, uh, said that uh, with this this device, the order of events, transformations of the shape of light depends on polarization. Again, James will explain this momentarily. By measuring the polarization of the photons at the output of the quantum switch, we were able to show the order of transformations on the shape of light uh, that it was not set. This is just a first proof of principle, but on a larger scale, indefinite casual order can have real practical applications like making computers more efficient or improving communications. If you're still confused, this study is obviously physics-based, unlike others that have claimed to have scientifically proved the chicken came first using other methods. Uh, But uh, we'll try to get James to explain this in such a way that the rest of us can uh, get it. The floor is yours, James, please. Um, The chicken or the egg and how quantum physics helps us better understand that they both happened at the same time. You know, you know, one of the things that I I love to eat the most is uh, you know chicken parm, which is you know you got chicken and uh, you kind of coat it in egg. That, that's my answer. Is <laughs> if you're really confused about it, have a really good plate of chicken parm. I think I get it. Very well done. And by the way, when you're eating chicken parm, which is short for parmesan, w- while you're eating it, you eat both the chicken and the egg at the same time. That's what I'm saying. Quantum physics, right there. Exactly. 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 Ex- Exactly. Nicely done, James. Well, on August the 21st... I'm available for tutoring. (laughs) I wouldn't recommend it, but he is available. Uh, On August the 21st, astronauts made history by playing the first ever tennis match in space. This was aboard the International Space Station. And yes, there is still one and there are still people in it. Well, the match was projected live onto an enormous globe in Queens, New York, where a crowd of Space and tennis enthusiasts gathered to watch the historic event. Now, my understanding was there was no outburst uh, during the game. There was no dispute over who did what and whether or not points should be assigned. So it was a rather friendly sportsmanlike ship game. But NASA astronaut and space station commander Drew Fustel, he played fellow in, uh, NASA astronaut Serena, no relation, Chancellor, and Ricky Arnold, along with European Space Agency astronaut Alexander Gerst, in a microgravity doubles match. Now, If you need to understand microgravity, perhaps we can call upon James to explain that later, but I'll assume for the moment that you get it. During the heated match, and it was heated, the full video of the event can be seen. Uh, The astronauts struggled with the limitations of microgravity environment while being careful not to cause any damage to the space station, which, of course, would have been catastrophic. But Fustel was um, well prepared. He's a lifelong tennis fan, and he got some pre-match tips from professional tennis player Juan de Porto, Portro, Uh, which he describes on Twitter. That was a fun chat with the tennis player. Thanks uh, for the tips. I need all the help I can get for tonight's game, he wrote at the time. Watch if you can. And he gave the time. Well, the astronauts used uh, tiny tennis rackets, little tiny, tiny tennis rackets, and a tennis ball to play, equipment designed to be safe to use aboard a space station. Kind of a Nerf ball, I'm guessing. You really don't want to break a window or something. Uh, One of the uh, executive directors of the United States Tennis Association told the Space.com station. The event took place in the um, Unisphere, a huge globe in uh, Flushing Meadow Corona Park in Queens that was uh, once the centerpiece of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. The Cosmic Tennis Match was projected onto the Unisphere. Seemed appropriate. Fustel uh, predicted that the game might uh, look a bit like the classic video game Pong, and it uh, turned out that that was, in fact, the case because the lack of gravity, the ball didn't bounce, and once it was hit, it traveled straight until it hit. It was hit again. But as the astronauts were uh, hitting the tennis ball in microgravity over the makeshift net, 
Uh, They themselves floated around, so it was difficult to control the ball, the net, or themselves. So they faced the added struggle of trying to stay upright to hit the ball to the right location. Fustel and Arnold, whom Fustel jokingly referred to as the assistant to the commander, a reference to the television show The Office, ended up uh, securing the victory in the extraterrestrial tennis match. But despite winning the match... Uh, one of the pair made, a, made it clear that uh, playing tennis in space is no easy task. I feel a little bit winded, he said afterward. It was a difficult match, and playing in microgravity is tough. Microgravity. James, you want to take a stab at that? Uh, I actually know this one. You have the floor. It, it's uh, what we would, uh, lame people, I suppose, would call weightlessness. Um, it's, it's the presence of gravity and much lesser than uh, what we're used to here on planet Earth, as Hence it the were. Hence word micro. Hence the word micro. And uh, anytime you experience anything, a weightlessness, um, that is actually microgravity. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I I feel confident enough saying, you look that up, that's accurate. All right. We're going to go with that. Thank you, scientist. I surprised myself. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. Um, A new study reveals how humans could potentially colonize Mars and create a self-sustaining research base that could support manned missions for several years. Are you interested? It's a rhetorical question. Scientists uh, at Switzerland Ecole Polytechnique Federale something something else came up with a multi-step plan which involves sending a robot to the Red Planet to build the base using the planet's natural resources to maintain it and sending a crew to its surface. The researchers propose setting up the base at, a, at the North Pole of Mars due to the natural resources in that region. The poles uh, may pose more challenges in the beginning, but they are the best location for the long term since they harbor natural resources that we may be able to use. That's a big may, of course, uh, says the lead author of the study in a statement, Anne Marlene Rood. Well, she continued, we wanted to develop a strategy based on techniques that have been uh, selected according to and uh, outline a test scenario so that 20 years from now, astronauts will be able to carry out this kind of mission. Uh, their plans uh, follows a NASA uh, competition calling for different teams to submit 3D printed habitats that they believe could be used to colonize Mars in the future. The research base would consist of three different modules, according to the scientists, and is described as a minimal living space, a dome made by uh, made of polythyrene fiber and three meter thick layers of ice. Uh, would cover the structure, giving it the appearance of an igloo. Uh, The dome would uh, also represent an additional living space, provide a second barrier to protect the crew against radiation and micrometeoroids, and help keep the pressure constant inside the base. Additionally, researchers envision a crane, uh, a system that would orbit the red planet to serve as a transfer point for goods uh, between shuttles coming from Earth. So you'd have things coming and going over a very very long period of time. Before sending any humans to Mars, however, a robot crew would build the base and test all the available natural resources. The researchers believe that the poles would be the most likely place to build a base as traces of life are most likely to be found in layered deposits of ice and dust near the poles. All that would make the research base self-sustaining for the long haul. So would you be willing to go to something like that? I'm really pretty happy with uh, terra firma. I kind of like the earth. I'm planning on leaving here at some point. Uh, I'll be summoned um, and I'm satisfied to wait until then. No, I'm not talking about some alien thing. I'm talking about the return of Christ. Um, anyway, I'm satisfied to wait till then, and then I can be called away. Well, I'm thinking about if we could maybe 
get a few people to chip in just to, to, to just to do that for you. I know you just really don't want to ask. You're too polite. I know. If you know, you really want to go, I think we could probably <laughs> no, arrange something. The question something. is, do you really want me to go? That's the truth of it. <laughs> More than life itself. <laughs> <laughs> Quick break. We'll be back. <laughs> You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. This is the final segment of the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. A quick look at what's coming up next week on the program. On Monday, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Lopez, author of The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. I should say he's really the editor of that book. Uh, it uh, it features a number of essays on the subject. That's uh, coming up on Monday. On Tuesday, we're working on a couple of things. Wednesday, we're going to uh, talk with Sandy Snavely and Connie McClelland. Uh, they are uh, putting together the Masterpiece Conference, The Art of Finishing Well. And I'm looking forward to giving you an opportunity to learn more. Uh, the conference is for women 50 and older and those who will be influenced um, by them. So we'll give you all the important details. That conference is coming up in October, and I would encourage you to be prepared to mark your calendars. It's going to be a, a quite a quite a conference. So they're uh, going to join me in studio on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Trey Doty with Responder Life. In fact, we're working on that. We haven't quite confirmed it yet, but our plan is to have Trey on the show, and if not uh, on Thursday, we'll try to get that in sooner rather than later. But those are the guests that we have confirmed thus far, and uh, looking forward to some great conversation. And then again on Friday of uh, next week, um, we will certainly lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, E.T. may have been trying to phone home, but new evidence suggests he may now be trying to reach us. That's because mysterious radio bursts in outer space have been detected by alien hunting artificial intelligence. Well, unusual and mysterious radio bursts have been detected three billion light years away from Earth, thanks to an artificial intelligence program at the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now, my guess is it's just the overflow of the sound of worship around the throne, and we're just hearing the blowback of it. But anyway, researchers at SETI, they used a machine um, learning algorithm to uncover 72 new, uh, they call them fast radio bursts, previously unidentified. The FRBSs, are free radio uh, bursts, uh, are coming from a galaxy far, far away. When combined with the 21 FRBs previously found in August of 2017, the total now comes to New 93 or 93 new FRBS discovered. Now, it is kind of curious. There's a lot going on in the heavens uh, that uh, the, the fact that they're identified as radio sounds or frequencies is an interesting way to consider them. But uh, it could be just about anything. And there's lots of activity in the heavens. Well, not all discoveries come from new observations, says Pete Warden, executive director of Breakthrough Initiatives, uh, who s- oversees the project. Uh, in this case, it was smart, original thinking applied to an existing database. It has advanced our knowledge of the one uh, or rather of one of the most tantalizing mysteries in astronomy and it is something of a mystery from our vantage point here on terra firma this work is only the beginning of using these powerful methods to find radio transients as they're called Um, we uh, hope our success may inspire other serious endeavors in applying machine learning to radio astronomy it's still see radio is good for so many things it's still unclear what's causing the frbs um, with the uh, the organization describing their source and mechanism as mysterious. Their uh, theories include highly magnetized neutron stars blasted by gas streams near the supermassive black hole to suggest that the burst properties are consistent with signatures of technology developed by an advanced civilization. What makes the FRBs that are uh, emanating from this particular location interesting is that these are usually one-time events. However, this particular series of sounds have been unusually active 
effective since it was discovered back in 2012, with researchers calling it a repeater. The researchers used the scientific program Breakthrough Listen to help uh, go through 400 uh, bits of data and find the 21 bursts, which were all seen within one hour, suggesting that the source alternates between periods of uh, questions, I didn't pronounce that correctly, and frenzied activity. The unknown, hmm, it's unknown how common these uh, sounds actually are, but it is a rather interesting uh, consideration. By the way, engineers have set to uh, see on, uh, well, it's been a week ago now, to deploy a trash collection device to corral plastic litter floating between California and Hawaii in an attempt to clean up the world's largest garbage patch in the heart of the Pacific Ocean. This 2,000-foot-long floating boom uh, was being towed from San Francisco to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, an island of trash twice the size of Texas. Well, the system was created by the Ocean Cleanup, an organization founded uh, Tony, uh, by a 24-year-old innovator from the Netherlands who first became passionate about cleaning the oceans when he went scuba diving at age 16 in the Mediterranean Sea and saw more plastic bags than fish. Well, the plastic is really persistent and it doesn't go away by itself. And the time to act is now, he suggests, adding that researchers with the, organiz- uh, the organization found plastic going back to the 1960s and 70s, bobbing in that patch. Now, the problem is it isn't all on the surface. It can be much, much deeper. But the buoyant U-shaped barrier made of plastic and with a a tapered 10-foot deep screen is intended to act like a a coastline, trapping some of the 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic that scientists estimate are swirling in that, um, that area, but allowing marine life to safely swim beneath it. Uh, Fitted with solar power lights, cameras, sensors, and satellite antennas, the cleanup system will communicate its position at all times, allowing a a supply vessel to fish out the collected plastic every few months and transport it to dry land where it will be handled properly. Well, it's interesting to see, or it will be interesting to see, whether or not this actually works and how effective it ultimately is. So we'll try to keep you posted on that uh, effort at cleanup. And of course, there are scientists who are concerned about its use, but we'll just have to see. Once again on Monday, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Lopez. The New Normal, The Transgender Agenda. He is the editor of that uh, volume, and we'll talk with him on Monday. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering uh, today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.